This episode is brought to you by Case Filters. Look, I travel the world with my camera and I can use any photography filter I like, and I tried them all. In recent years, however, I've landed on Case Filters. That's Case with a K, K-A-S-E. Case Filters are made with premium materials, HD optical glass, shockproof, zero color cast, round and square filter designs, magnetic systems, filter holders, adapters, step-up rings, everything I need so I never miss a moment. And now my listeners can get a 10% off the Case Filters Amazon page when they visit beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and use the coupon code Burnaby10. That's beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and coupon code Burnaby10 for 10% off your Case Amazon order. Case Filters, capture with confidence. Hi, I'm Richard Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with inspiring people from around the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Munch, photographer, which you all probably know, and business owner. And I'm referring to, of course, Munch Workshops, of which he, along with Andy Williams and David Rosenthal, is an owner. We talk about his approach to photography, of course, the art of seeing, what it was like growing up in a family of photographers, which included his grandfather, father, and mother, the editorial work and assignments he did earlier in his career, including a ski photography assignment in Iran. We talk about Munch workshops and photography workshops in general, what it takes to be a good teacher and what it takes to be a good student. I also solicited questions from guests on the expedition we were on at the time and offered them up to Mark, which was kind of fun, which then leads me to what I like most about this episode. In addition to having a fascinating chat with a great guy, which were the conditions in which we made the recording. It was the first time I had done a face-to-face interview using the H6 Zoom recorder, and it felt like a much more intimate and friendly conversation as opposed to recording remotely. It definitely had a different vibe, so look for more interviews like this in the future. And then there are the circumstances. So picture this. We're in the closing days of a 20-plus day Antarctic expedition, which included the Falkland Islands, South Georgia Island, as well as Antarctica. We're in a small cramped cabin in the bottom of the ship. We're sitting on these tiny beds, a mere two or three feet from one another, holding microphones in one hand, gripping the bed frames. I'm talking white knuckle grips here with the other hand. And that's because we're crossing the Drake Passage on our way back to South America. The ship is rolling and lurching over and through 25 to 30 foot ocean swells. We're both exhausted and under the influence of seasickness medications, but we get it done. And we finished the recording. Mark says, these darn medications, my brain wasn't working. And I said, same, except my mouth wasn't working. And we both laughed and I briefly considered re-recording maybe at another time under better circumstances. And then I thought, nah, nah, let's run with it. It's real. It's raw. It's beautifully imperfect. 
or imperfectly beautiful. Either way, I'm just proud that we made it through the session without either of us getting physically sick as it was happening. I've yet to listen to a single second of it, but here it is for your listening pleasure. Please do enjoy this conversation with Mark Munch aboard the NV Ushuaia. Hey, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. It's going to be fun. Talk some shop. <laughs> yes, talk shop. First of all, how are you feeling? Well, I feel like spaghetti because we've been bouncing on the ocean for three weeks, but I feel good. Yeah, that sounds like an unusual question to start an interview with. That's because we are in the bowels of the venerable MV Ushuaia, crossing the Drake Passage somewhere between the Antarctic Peninsula and Ushuaia, Argentina. And we've been uh, shaking up for the last, well, three weeks, right? Yeah, we're starting. We can see Tierra del Fuego on the horizon off our bow. So that's a really good sign. We're, we're coming into port here shortly, hopefully. So I'm happy you agreed to do this. You're, when I can see, though, this podcast... You know, last year, you're one of the first people I thought of, of wanting to interview. So I appreciate you uh, taking yeah, the time. Of course, that's fine. Um, and one of the reasons is you've you've done so many things and do so many things. Photographer, a writer. You help run a business, which we're going to talk about later. Munch workshops. You're an educator, and a surfer. I understand. As and well. a surfer. So if you were to run into someone at a party or at a grocery store and they ask you what you do. What do you tell them? Uh, I'm a professional photographer that I run a boutique travel business with people that want to learn photography and want to do it somewhere exciting. And that's why we bring these people to different places all over the world for our workshops. But I also love the outdoors. That's a big part of me. So I include that somehow in my answer. So if you had a, a business card, and maybe you do, what do you have on your business card? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. We just have uh, our names and the business name and a picture. And not a description of what you do. No. Yeah, I think I'd have to. I'd, I'll chatter on about that way too long and what goes on a business card. So you come from a family of photographers. Uh, many listening will already know that. Your grandfather, Joseph, was a photographer. Your father, David, a, an influential landscape photographer. And your mom. Yep. And your mom, too. And my mom, absolutely. And she's a watercolor painter as well. Would you have found this line of work on your own as, as a calling? Or do you think that this they influenced you so much that that kind of steered you in, in this direction? Yeah, good question. And my parents definitely steered me in this direction because I had no clue what was outside of the little tiny bubble in a bubble in a bubble, what we call Santa Barbara, meaning there's no ghetto. There's, there's no real hard times. You go to a nice public school that you learn from and you're educated by, and then you, at some point in your life, get outside of that bubble and realize there's a whole world out there. And most of the kids that I w went through school with didn't do that until maybe after college. So my parents brought me out since I was two. You know, we were camping out in the woods for months on end every summer in fact they'd bring us out of school when i was in grade school and we'd have to do homework that the teacher made up for us to do some you know essay on where we went so it was those moments when i was young when i saw the american west and even the east coast that left a great memory and created the inspiration for me to keep photographing are there any defining moments in your childhood with your either your father or your grandfather kind of led you down this path you know, they never said you got to be a photographer. And so 
I think that ability to choose that career, um, choose the career of photography on my own helped me. Um, but there were times when I would be with my parents alpine camping in, let's say, the Wind Rivers. And my dad would say, well, yeah, I'm going to go over here and take pictures. And sometimes he wouldn't even say that. He'd just be gone. So I would follow him sometimes, and then I would go walk around the other side of the lake, maybe try a little trout fishing. But one time in the winds, I went on a hike, and I didn't even tell my parents. I think I may have mentioned it to my mom. I'm going to go up that ridge. And it was this 2,500-foot ridge over the lake. And I got up there, and this big storm came in, and I was huddled up under this cave uh, out of the rain for about an hour and a half and uh, looking down on the little tiny camp and I had grabbed my father's 35 millimeter Leica because he wasn't using it and he did say you know if you want to go take pictures go ahead so I had it and I was sitting in that little cave looking out at this mountain range that went on forever taking pictures and I thought okay this is not that bad great moments like that it sounds kind of uh, wild for most people but that was what gets my blood going so probably fairly common though for your vacations your your if your mom and dad were out doing photography too it was just a part of growing up mm -hmm. so if you weren't a photographer let's just say that that you didn't have that childhood you didn't have that background what do you think you'd be doing today if not, if not a photographer a surfer oh yeah if i were a pro surfer that would be fun <laughs> no doubt about that they get to surf all the great waves no i doubt i would have gone that far with surf but I had a really interest in uh, two things. One was medical school, and the other was carpentry. I don't know how those two came up, but I loved working with wood. And I started studying as if I was going to go to med school, and I realized I had dyslexia. That kind of took me five times to read everything my friends were reading and understood it. So I spent a lot of time determining that or convincing myself that if I wanted to go into med school, it was going to be a whole hell of a lot of work. And I realized then, oh, let me, let me do something else. And photography literally was so easy. I could go out and take pictures. As long as they were close to what my dad was doing, I had that incentive that if my pictures were as good as his, then they might sell. So for me, it was just go to Art Center College of Design and learn the trade of it and then go out and be commercial. So you did go to school for I did. photography? Yep, I did two years at a community college in Santa Barbara, great community college. We had a journalism advisor, and that's where I met my wife. We, she was the editor-in-chief, and I was the publisher. And so we would go, I'd go out and sell ads for this little newspaper that we actually printed in paper and distributed throughout the campus. And we won all kinds of awards with the stories we wrote. And, uh, you know, we'd interview the president of the college. We'd interview the sports teams and some of the politicians in town. So it was a good, engaging junior college experience. And then you, you really started out your photography career in, in commercial and editorial? Yeah. So at Art Center, nobody photographed or could teach what I was going to do, which was sports landscape, you know, sports in the landscape, actually. So all the instructors that taught at Art Center were successful commercial photographers. So we'd get that influence of what they're working on and how they're making their money. But uh, I was gonna learn everything of the trade, and then once I left, 
then I started practicing sending portfolios around to some of the clients my father was working with. And the next thing you know, somebody needed a person in that landscape instead of just a landscape, and that was me. Either skiing, climbing, hiking, biking, didn't matter. There were many clients. So it was like instant success, if you will. And I can't say it was because of me. I think it was more because nobody else was doing that commercially. So I think I have a book of yours and your father's. It was called Primal Forces. Yeah, we did Primal Forces. Yeah. I have that on my bookshelf. And cool. if I remember, wasn't most of your contributions with people in the photographs? I did have quite a few I in think there. That's yeah, what it I wasn't remember. that was a different book, which was fun. It wasn't always our best shot. You know, some of the moodier ones, the darker ones that because when you're publishing these books, the the book publishers want to sell as many as possible. And so they will influence sometimes which pictures go in the book, like a field of flowers. Always. Everybody likes the field of flowers, a few puffer clouds and some mountains. But in Primal Forces, we were able to pick our favorite images. And that's what made it so nice. So fun for us. What's the wildest or craziest assignment you were ever sent on? Oh, um, so I worked for editorial magazines outside ski skiing and uh, powder occasionally and then a few others like Sierra magazine and such so for a while I would get about four or five assignments a year from these different magazines and I had a friend who I met who uh, was a writer for National Geographic and he said Mark I want to go do a story on skiing in Iran and I thought my jaw dropped and I went okay that sounds really exciting, but there's no way we're going to get a, you know, a Wait, visa what, to what get year, in there. What year would this have been? This was in 90, 95. Okay, so well past the revolution. Idea. Well past the revolution. But the crazy thing is he actually got our visas in D.C. through the Pakistani embassy to go to Iran. And it was FedEx to me the day before my flight left Santa Barbara. So we did it. We went to Iran and photographed a ski area called Dizin, which is above Tehran, or Tehran as they call it in Iran. And the crazy thing was uh, flying in, and right before we landed, the uh, flight attendant told everybody, all the women, to cover their hair, cover their faces as much as possible, and get ready for going through immigration. And I just, even today, I think, wow, it's just crazy to hear that. And, actually be landing into a city where we were the second journalists to enter the country of Iran after 60 Minutes went in and interviewed the president of Iran. So we were the only the second Americans allowed in with a visa until that time, which was kind of crazy as well. So was that for National Geographic or another project? That was for Skiing Magazine. Skiing Magazine. Yeah. And they basically told the writer, hey, if you can get your visas you can go do it and we did so we went and did it and the funny part was we're walking up to immigration and there's this you know officer towering above me 10 feet in the air and I've handed my passport to his assistant and he's flipped it up state up on top of the stand and the guy looks down this huge counter at me and he goes how's Michael Jackson (laughs) <laughs> he was, you know, having fun. He had not seen anybody from the States in so long. You and I are, are somehow co-contributors to a certain issue of Outdoor Photographer Magazine. I, through some obvious inept editorial decision, got the cover. And on the inside, you had a feature called The Art of Seeing. What is The Art of Seeing, or how would you at least describe it? 
Yeah, it's a way to talk about composition and what inspired you to get there. So, as you know, you talk about composition in many great ways with your slideshows and showing pictures of, you know, shapes of things. And Thank you. How lines draw you in. And it's, it's really a great idea for anybody to watch those, those shows. And what you come away with is that it's really hard for people to see things that don't exist. And it's called paradelia which is when you see the rabbit in the moon. and Paradelia. Can you spell Paradelia. that? How do you spell that? I, you know, I'm a horrible speller, <laughs> but I think it's P-A-R-A-D-A-L-I-A, something like that. Oh, we'll look it up. Or okay. dolia, paradolia. It's a good word. It's a great word because that defines what I tell people to look for when they're out in nature, is that connecting rocks that make a line, and that's really our heads trying to make that connection of all those things that make a line. So when I say um, seeing abstractly, that's basically what that is. It is, yes. Okay. Yep. And so clouds look like, you know, poodles, all that stuff. It's the same thing. So when you go out into nature, not everybody sees all these exciting things that you and I probably see because we have seen it a lot. And they come out and they just look at a mountain and say, oh, that's a mountain. Right. There's some snow on it. Cool. Look at the clouds, you know. And but what I see when I go there is I see if the snow has melted in a certain way, there's these incredible lines like a f spokes of a wheel coming down from the top. And I see that instantly. It's not, I don't have to work at it. And so convincing somebody of how to see that shape that it's being made is what the art of seeing is about. Do you think people are born with that or do you think that's something people can learn? I think it's something people can acquire and they have to work at it because you've been giving workshops for years as we have and we have people that come back and one day it clicks and they they realize it and they start showing me images that they created on their own during a workshop we tell them go you know get a picture of some maybe near and far or something and then they come back with this amazing picture including everything we've been talking about for three or four workshops so it, I think people can acquire it. And speaking of which, you're one of the founding partners of one of the largest, or at least uh, one of the largest and best known photography workshop companies in the world, which also happens to bear your name. Uh, how did you get into this business and uh, how was Munch Workshops conceived? Uh, it was kind of fun. Andy Williams, David Rosenthal and I were driving through the desert and uh, Andy, being Andy, said, hey, let's let's do more of this. And what he meant was we had these shootouts that the company he was working for at the time was called Smug Mug. And if 50 or so people would come, I'd give a talk to the group in the beginning, and then everybody'd go out and shoot. We'd come back and look at pictures and then repeat the same thing for about three days. And we had just finished one in Moab, Utah, and we were driving down to uh, Grand Junction, and we were driving down to Arches National Park. And we started talking about doing workshops. But we all came to the consensus that it should be small groups, eight people, probably two instructors, so that everybody gets their one-on-one -on -one time. And literally that conversation is what started the company. And next thing you know, Andy had uh, signed us up for an LLC in California. <laughs> the next day, we were all signing papers and uh, it got going. We did two workshops a year for about three years. We were all busy doing other stuff and then uh, everybody loved them. So we added two more and two more and two more. And now we've got almost 100 workshops or over 100 workshops if we get everything going. Yeah, I, th I was gonna ask how many you have planned for next year. 
I think you cover all seven continents. We do. All seven yeah. Do you have a particularly favorite that you like going back to? Favorite continent? Favorite continent, favorite uh-huh. location that Munich offers that you personally haven't gotten tired of? You just keep wanting to go back, back and back and back and back? Yeah, it's, I, I would say South Georgia Islands, but it's so far, <laughs> it's hard no to get way. there. <laughs> you don't say. It's just so, you know, the reason I loved it there is that it's so exotic, right? And I know I can't get there maybe once a year, maybe once every three years or something. But, you know, I have a couple. Death Valley is one of them. Death Valley's, I've been visiting it since I was two. And so I know it really well, and I know I have pictures there I can, that I, I can haven't attest, captured. I can test to that because we did a workshop together right. in, in, uh, earlier this winter, and I just sat back and let you determine where we were going. I thought I knew it well, but um, after spending some time with you, I just let you drive, and we went where you went. It was fun. Yeah, the big dunes, the Eureka dunes. I used to slide down on a uh, homemade sandboard. If you put Formica under a plywood, you bend the tip up, in a mold and then you wax the formica and it's like ice <laughs> back in the day when you could do that is there an overriding principle or a business philosophy that has guided you and dave and andy in making mutual workshops is the really the success it has been today yeah i think we want to give people we want to put people in a place where they can learn so they're not feeling crowded. They're not feeling frustrated by crowds in a situation. And they're getting the information they need before the workshop starts, during the workshop, and even after the workshop. So we're giving them whatever they want, basically, photographically. As you know, people finish a workshop and we tell them, hey, call us up, email us, and set up a time to go over your images, even when the workshop's over. So I think, I think that creates a family of learning. That's what we call it. You know, new people come in. We don't have hordes of new people coming in. We have 60% return clientele on most trips. And then the new ones come in and instantly bond with some of those who have been on these trips. And then they tell them more about their experiences. And then it's word of mouth. And that's, I think, what's spread fastest for us is uh, everybody's experience they've shared through word of mouth. Is there any particular characteristic or a personality trait that you'd say is important in being a good photography instructor or teacher Uh, or just a good teacher in general? I think, well, first of all, you have to have the right knowledge set, you know, the right stuff, if you will, to sound kind of corny. But if you then can take that information and then give it to somebody in a patient way, because not everybody gets stuff right away. And you know, you've talked to very bright people, extremely intelligent people that just don't understand something very simple photographically and so you have to be able to twist the knowledge so that you can reach those people and other people in different ways so it's it's more patience from yourself and asking them for their patience to stop what they're doing stop the anxiety they have about going back to work in three days or five days and then really focus on what you're talking about and that's the advantage of being in somewhere that's great because you can just point to something. So how about the same question for someone coming on a photography workshop? Is there a particular mindset or mentality that would serve them best to get the best experience? Absolutely, if they want to learn. You know, you and I are still learning about photography. It never ends. And the hardest 
times we have are people that don't really want to learn. They want to be taken somewhere and get their picture and go. And that's fine. If, if somebody admits to that ahead of time, hey, we have no problem with that. But I think it's, uh, it, it's the encouragement or the patience, the uh, willingness that people create in themselves to allow themselves to learn. Those are the best people that we have the most fun with and can share the most with. So imagine there's somebody out there listening that um, this is either a beginner or maybe even an advanced photographer and say, hey, I really like what they're doing. I'd like to be a Munch instructor one day mm-hmm. and travel the world to all these exotic locations. What type of advice would you give them if you have somebody out there who makes it a goal or a, aspires to be an instructor with Munch workshops? Well, it's a good point. I know. Uh, we have people calling us, emailing us, saying, hey, I'm at this point in my life. I'd love to teach photography. I'd love to be a, a leader, one of your instructors. And I, I get this picture in my mind of what, not all of them, but what most of these people are thinking, that they're standing out there in some beautiful vista, and they're you know, talking to somebody about the composition and how great that moment is. But, 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 to get to that point is a ton of logistics. And and a ton of politics, really, to be able to relate to people that are totally different than yourself and make them feel comfortable to go out to that location. Some people are scared, you know, of of heights. And so everything you can imagine, all the psychology of people is something you have to be at least in tune with because you can't just shut people out because they don't think the way you do. That's the hardest part, to be honest, is relating to people about what you love and if you love it and we find out that that person loves it too then it's pretty much guaranteed that we can help them come to a point where they can reach out to almost everybody and teach yeah and i've watched you in action i can see you're one of the best uh, Thank you, educators in photography that i know of i'm, I'm saying that uh, in all honesty i solicited some questions from our guests here on the boat okay I thought that would be fun and so they know I'm doing this interview you with you. You didn't give them too, many, too long to f- determine their question, I did gave you? them a lot of time <laughs> uh, to, to give their best questions, and I thought it would be fun if I could pose those to you. Let's start with, how did the Munch pose originate? Huh. So first, for those who may be not familiar with the Munch pose, it's on the front page of the website if you go to munchworkshops.com. Um, it's sort of a yoga pose in a way. Maybe you can describe it better than I can. It's Yeah, it's like an... A position of activity is what I can sum it up with. It just is a sign that you're engaged in where you are. And and that can sound a little hokey, but I don't know who came up with it. I remember Andy doing it, uh, and it may have been Andy doing it. It may have been me doing it one day on a rock. I don't even know who started it. I'll, I'll say it was Andy's idea for now. But when we took that picture, it was the perfect place because it was a profile of a figure against a little lake hidden in these beautiful green meadows of upper highlands scottish highlands great location so that was the quintessential moment where i could say look at this landscape and you know here i am striking a pose because photography is all about moving through the country and you've got to be limber you've got to be agile you've got to be nimble quick and efficient if you're curious go to munchworkshops.com uh, to see the pose but it's think of being on one leg the other leg stretched outward one arm stretched outward and you're balanced on one leg 
but I would encourage you to go check it out for yourself. Second one, I'm going to keep all this anonymous. I'm not going to mention any names. Was there a moment in your career when you realized being a photographer was not about having good equipment? Yeah, definitely. I I remember watching some of Galen Rowell's, uh, or I should say, meeting some of Galen Rowell's former customers. And they always laughed that they would go to this workshop with Galen Rowell and he'd show up with like a $10, you know, bottom of the Coke bottle lens, <laughs> terrible equipment, and get these amazing shots. And I'll never forget that. I also won't forget that my father uses the tiniest little slick tripod for his 4x5 camera, which always made me laugh. I always tried to explain Why? that to Why? the engineers that really write stuff. Like, you guys don't need this tripod to hold down a Sherman tank. I think the concept that most people forget that when you're using a tripod and it's blowing a lot, like on this trip, it's been blowing 30, 40, 50 knots, you're not trying to get a picture. That's not when you're using a tripod. It's really just some place for your camera to rest and a subtle breeze is okay, but you're not going to shoot in much more than that anyways, typically. So unless you're trying to get those windy looking shots that aren't handheld, you don't need this ballistic big tripod. But I still love new equipment that's really good equipment. So I have to be careful still have about that, what I'm saying. That equipment lust that doesn't go away. Did your hobbies of surfing and skiing shape your photography in any way? Sure. Yeah. And my how? first book project was skiing the Rockies. So I had started uh, skiing with my friends in high school. We'd go up three hours to go to Mountain High and rent some bad skis and fall all over the mountain. But I fell in love with skiing, and I got to the point where we were doing backcountry ski tours through the High Sierras that would take five days. And with all that background and knowledge, I wanted to photograph that sport, that mountaineering-esque look. And that was one incentive. And then uh, I photographed surfing but never really got into it that much because I, I just did that for myself, if you will. Got a few good surf shots, but compared to what's being done today, those big, huge waves, you know, you can't compete unless you're out there in that stuff all the time. What photographs of yours do you have hanging up in your home? I'm just starting a project where I'm asking other photographers to swap prints because I've seen my pictures, I know them, and I get tired of them. <laughs> my wife likes them and my family likes them, but I just get to the point where I want to see something different. So I'm just starting that project soon. I'm going to ask you for one of those prints. And does this project have a name? Oh, it's just uh, my project. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I'm going to ask everybody to pick their picture they want to share. I'm not going to pick it. I have pictures of some pretty, uh, of images that were special to me, not just because of the image, but how I captured them. Those are the ones I try to put up. My favorite images of my own are always emblematic of an experience I had. And so it may not be the best photo that I've taken, at least in my own opinion, but it represents an experience, maybe people I was with, maybe what was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of like you, I get tired of my own. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a good project. I'll, I'll be happy to, uh, to Let's donate do one. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. What purchase of $100 or less have you made that has had the greatest impact on your photography? Is that after a discount? Like, <laughs> we're, we're, so a company really, discount? A really rough, really rough <laughs> estimate of $100. Put okay. that way. You know what my favorite tool is? And, and it's just a piece of cardboard to flag the lens. 
when I'm shooting into the sun. You can get great shots, backlit shots, and not many people do it. And it's really hard for people to understand where to flag the light coming into a telephoto lens. And you have to walk around the front of a camera and watch your shadow hit the front element of the glass. And that's when you're truly shaded. So being short, I just need a little extension, a piece of cardboard so I can get that that's right. L- that's like less than $20. <laughs> it might not be 20 Okay, I'm going to rephrase this question because I know I get sick of hearing, what's your favorite place to go photograph? And we've already kind of touched on that. If you had to choose one place to photograph the rest of your photography career and that one place only, what would it be? Yeah, that's a tough one because now I've seen all these places and they all kind of equalize, you know, the qualities of them are so unique. It's hard to pick. I would say, I, I remember the first time I entered the Mara, the Masai Mara, and that October, that first day, it rained two inches in camp, and then we went out, and thunderheads were still billowing in the horizon. Giraffes were crossing the ridges. Lions were coming out of the bushes. I mean, it was the most magical experience I think I could ever have. There is one place, though, and I don't know if I'd photograph it for the rest of my life, but that everybody should see, I think. It's the Bolivian salt flats. It's just where you feel like an astronaut because there's an inch of water for miles and miles and when the wind stops and the stars are out you walk out onto that water and there's stars overhead stars below and it's just magical so we have a trip there don't we we do okay so yeah check that out photographic influences of yours other than your father and grandfather i'm gonna have to write down some names for you to give you but I look at Instagram and I look at Facebook, not so much Facebook as much anymore, but uh, I think originally it was Galen Rowell and the concept that Adams had is something I agree with, which is creating one great image, put all your energy into that rather than a plethora of 10, 10 a year. Was it 10 good images a year? I just remember in my, what I understood was one great image, even from one trip come away from one workshop or one experience and you come away with one picture not 20 or 30 and that stuck with me Um, but there were several uh, ski photographers that who influenced me er in the earlier days that are no longer alive uh, because of avalanches and such those are probably the most influential and then uh, yeah Galen Rowell's work sent me off on another same way maybe his writing even more so than his photos yeah great writer he had a good way of expressing how he saw things that influenced me when I was starting out as well sorry I never met him though I yeah I met him a couple times and it was right when I was going to go see him in Bishop and then plane went down so that was tragic I must say also that what other topics inspire me is oil-based paints and watercolor artists do you do any uh, I don't do any myself I tried my daughter's spectacular at it and I asked her for help one day and she said dad just look at it and draw it it wasn't that simple. <laughs> I'm wondering if having a background in photography would help, being that you're, you're aware of shadows, you're aware of lighting, if that mm. would help with painting. I've never tried I think it myself. It does. I think it helps you immensely at seeing what somebody else created, where they put the shadows, where they put the highlights, and then those are things you can look for in pictures as well, in natural light. How about one book about photography, art, design, travel, nature, that you recommend to most people? Aside from any of your own. <laughs> you can include your own. Yeah, you've got to get my book for sure. 
the older book that I read has the most influence on me, and uh, it's about Western photography and how the West is being developed, and it's changing the course of what you see there, and it's changing the course of the landscape that you photograph. And it influenced me in a way that made me think more about the history of a place rather than just what you see right then. Does it have a name? I will get you that name. <laughs> okay. I think it's the I think it's the uh, meds I'm on for the, the, the seasickness. seasickness. <laughs> same here. I'm having the same cloudy brain problem oh, here. Where it was my questions. memory? Uh, one last one. This is a fun one. Let's say uh, we get back to Ushuaia and you walk into a bar. What are you going to order? I think I'm going to order a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> I miss a cheeseburger. You know, good beef. What goes with medium. the cheeseburger? Cheese on there, a little bit of uh, sauce, barbecue sauce, um, and a bun, <laughs> and a salad. Okay. I do want a big salad. Fair also. enough, fair enough. You're not going to get into the drinks, but uh, you can have a cold beer with that then, maybe. You know, I have forgotten about that. I'm excited to have not only beer, but maybe a gin and tonic. <laughs> there you go. That answers the question. Great. So, folks, if you want to check out Mark's work, uh, I invite you to go to markmunch.com. That's Mark with a C, M-U-E-N-C-H.com. And it's pronounced Munch. You got it. We should get that out right out to from the beginning, but we didn't. Munch. And then munchworkshops.com for all their offerings in the rest of 2022 and 2023. Soon be getting 2024 up. It's coming fast. Yeah, in the next few months. I invite you to check it out. And Mark... Thanks again for taking out time. I know we have a busy day ahead of us as we pull into port. Yep, time to disembark. Everybody's got their pictures. We'll have a little last night dinner celebration, and then the off toast. we go. The toast. Off we go to flying back home. There we go. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Enjoyed Bonk. it. Thank you. It was fun, Richard. You've been listening to Beyond the Lens with me, Richard Burnaby. Thank you to my guest, Mark Munch, for a fascinating and adventurous conversation. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. Tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any suggestions or feedback. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to your podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you would like to see from Beyond the Lens in the future. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Here's to truth, adventure, and passion. See you next time. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Podcast Partners.